Hello everyone, I'm Carrie, pelvic physiotherapist and owner of A Body in Motion Rehab. And I want to welcome you to Tales from the Floor. You are about to embark on an eye-opening journey with myself and my pelvic team as we introduce you to your pelvic floor and the floors that we visit on a regular basis. We are going to take all those difficult to discuss topics and with an upbeat and raw truth, we're going to leave you feeling empowered, educated, and ready to tell your own pelvic tales. This podcast is for everyone, all genders, all ages, all stages. No more whispering. It's time to talk tales from the floor. Hey everyone, welcome back to Tales from the Floor. For those of you who are joining us tonight for the first time, we want to welcome you to our podcast. And for those of you who were with us after our first episode, welcome back. I'm sure by the end of our series, you will know all of us by name and recognize our voices. But until then, I want to take a moment to just have each member of my fabulous pelvic physiotherapy team introduce themselves to you. Hi, it's Nadia. I'm excited to have this discussion tonight. I'm ready for our second episode. Hi, everyone. It's Laura. I'm happy to be back, excited to be back. I'm a pelvic health physio with these amazing group of ladies, and I'm so honored to be here. Hi, everyone. I'm Melissa. I'm a pelvic health physiotherapist, and I'm excited to be here tonight. Hi, everyone. Last but not least, I'm Helena, back again. Um, I'm also a pelvic physiotherapist, and I'm very happy to be here. Episode number two. Woo! Oh, I'm excited, <laughs> girls. Well, welcome, guys. Thanks so much for being here again with me. Um, tonight, we are going to talk about what happens if that floor that we speak of leaks. And uh, leaking, or uh, more, more commonly named incontinence, can be defined as any unwanted loss of urine. So folks, this is never normal. It is super common, but it's never normal. I'm sure you ladies would agree that if we had a quarter for every time a person told us that they thought leaking pee was normal, we'd be some rich women and we'd be hosting this podcast from a significantly <laughs> more exotic location. I went very rich. <laughs> but even though leaking pee is not normal, uh, many more people than you would think do it. So just a few stats to throw out. Um, and I'm sure again, all of you are familiar with these. Uh, latest stats are stating that about 3.3 million Canadians, so nearly 10% of our population, experience some form of leakage. And uh, the unfortunate part, as you'll hear about tonight, is that often people are not speaking to their doctors about these symptoms. So um, according to the Canadian Urinary Bladder Survey, 16% of males and 33% of uh, females over the age of 40 have symptoms of leakage, which are huge numbers. But only 26% when people were asked actually discussed it with their healthcare providers. So, and trust me in that statement that I just made, it's not only people over 40 who experience incontinence. Every person has a pelvic floor and there's a variety of reasons for incontinence. And we're going to introduce you to those this evening. But anyway, you look at it, these are big numbers. And at the end of the day, that is especially concerning, especially when these floors that we speak of leak and we know that they can be fixed. So tonight we're gonna to talk about how we can help you do that. So guys, thanks so much again for being here tonight. I wanna to talk a little bit about 
this leakage and or urinary incontinence. And I think oftentimes it gets grouped into just what it is, leakage. But we all know there's several different kinds of urinary incontinence. And I just want to kind of bring people up to speed because we um, will probably use different words this evening. And uh, I want to just give everyone a little uh, a little lesson on what type of incontinence, uh, what types of incontinence there are and uh, how they present. So um, let's talk stress incontinence first. Uh, no, I'd give us a, take us, take us through stress incontinence. Um, well, that's the type of incontinence that, um, you'll experience with basically any type of stressor. So coughing, sneezing, um, jumping during exercise. That's a big one that I hear. Um, and so basically if there's any pressure, um, on top in your, in your abdominal area, um, that basically your pelvic floor can't support because it's weakened or if it's too tight, um, but it, nonetheless, it's weakened. And so what happens is if the pressure on top is greater than that, um, the strength below, th then it actually causes leakage. So that's kind of the, the gist of it. Um, I don't know, with my patients, a lot of them will describe crossing their legs when they sneeze or... Um, feeling as though they need to like sit down when they cough or sneeze just to be able to, to hold the leakage in um, just because the pressure up top is, is greater than, than what their pelvic floor can support. And, um, and yeah, usually like they'll wear pads or some sort of um, incontinence padding to, to kind of pre help prevent that, I guess. Well, not prevent it, but to, to help with um, the embarrassment of, of having it all over their clothing or, or whatnot when they're working out or walking or whatever they're doing. Perfect. Yeah, Nats, I was just going to agree with you when you said that they say they cross their legs. I feel like that's a very common, even meme out on Instagram, <laughs> women um, crossing their legs when they're laughing or they say, oh, no, I don't have a problem with my pelvic floor, but I just have to cross my legs every time I laugh. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's like the stress incontinence type. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I um I was kind of giggling when you said um, about the pads as well, nods, just in the fact that um, a lot of women getting them to give up their pad, that 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 protection, that feeling of security is a really big part of what we do. And it, it is actually I've actually gone through situations where I've got women um, training themselves to be OK by not using their their product. And um, a really big part of, of what we do, although it seems like it would have absolutely nothing to do with what we do. Mm -hmm. I think too, a lot of women have been conditioned to wear pads since they were teenagers because that's what their mom did or that's what they thought was normal. And so I've had some clients that come in and they're like, well, I don't even, I just always wear them, you know, every day, change it multiple times. So yeah, trying to get them to understand that you can go without it is is sometimes hard. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like a security blanket, right? When they mm -hmm. know that they're going to be out in public and it's an embarrassing issue for them. It's a, it's a just in case. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I actually yeah. had a client today who was um, talking about uh, it's almost like PTSD. Like they, they fixed their problem. They went to a public floor physio and they like, they don't leak anymore. This was an ortho client, not a public client. And um, they, can't even leave the house without putting on a pad because they just feel like just in case that that issue comes back they want to make sure that they're secure and not uh, and not 
having that embarrassment of leaking possibly. And, and so she kind of described it as a, as a PTSD kind of situation, which I, I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah, it can be something I'm really fear, fearful um, of. And the other thing that I think is important to mention here, and I always talk about this with my clients, is, um, you know, we have these products out there for this reason. One of the things that I always try to say to my my clients is, um, we're going to work really hard to get rid of those. It's one of the first things I say, like, we're going to work really hard to get you confident in, in leaving without the use of a product. And the other big thing that I think is really worth pointing out here is that um, I always encourage my patients to use incontinence products. Mm, so a yeah. lot of my patients will use a menstrual product. So a menstrual pad or a liner, panty liner is the big one. Um, and the trouble is, as we all know, is that a menstrual pad does not draw urine away from the vulva or, or uh, yeah, the perineal area. So that urine is left sitting on your skin in it. And at the end of the day, urine is acidic. So it can actually burn the skin. And I've had clients where I've actually seen the outline of a pad in their perineal area because it, with the skin being so red and damaged. So I'm always really, when I ask that question in my assessment, I always follow it up with, um, okay, I really want you to go get one box of an incontinence product. And, you know, we're going to work hard that you'll, we'll never have to buy another box of an incontinence product again. But in the meantime, while we're working through this and we're training, let's, let's keep our skin healthy. Let's keep the perineal area healthy. I think the advertising around those products is so misleading. And I actually keep a box of pads and a box of incontinence pads in my office. So I can show people like, this is what you're looking for when you go. Cause a lot of times I ask women, what pads do you use? And they're like, I don't know the liner. And I'm like, what's the brand? And they're like, always. And I think always is making a fortune on people who think incontinence pads are period pads, I swear. Laura, always is making a fortune off everybody because yeah, they're, sure. they're the one pad and, and I can, I'll probably get a legal letter from always after saying yeah. this, but they're the one product that I will always say, please throw out your always products. Yeah. The chemicals in their dry weave are horrific. Mm -hmm. And if we want to talk about damaged perineal area, the skin in your perineal area, use it, use it always product. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think the, are the incontinence products more expensive though, right? I think that's why. Yeah. They're also them. in a different area. Like at least at my drugstore, like they're with the adult diapers, whereas oh most people I think look for them in the the aisle where you find menstrual products and so those are the only pads that they can see and then that's what they get but they're actually in a different location in my experience yeah I think that another big thing that really helps people transition if they need it from period products to incontinence products is that most period products don't really have anything to help with odor and that's usually one of the reasons why people are wearing pads and liners is because they don't want people to smell if they've had mm -hmm. a leak, right? And so mm -hmm. incontinence products usually do that. And so sometimes that can help to encourage people to transition to incontinence products if they need them. Good point. Yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. Okay. I'm pulling us back to stress and conscience because we, because <laughs> we went on a tangent there, but you know what, a really important tangent, because um, I do think that products are, um, you know, they're, they're sort of monopolizing that part of the world. And even so far as to go with, um, you know, some people who have incontinence are actually wearing adult diapers. We talked about that. And I remember once having a, a younger gentleman come into my office and um, he was dressed in a suit, dressed very nicely and he had his briefcase. And um, as we were going through the, the assessment, I said to him, you know, okay, so what kind of product do you use? And he reached into his briefcase and he pulled out an adult diaper. And I, my heart broke in a million pieces because I was like, okay, this is, this is incentive, right? This is something that, and you know, he, he didn't want to have to do that. And he even less wanted to tell me that that's what he was doing. But, um, you know, to just be able to say to him, okay, well, let's, let's do it. Let's get rid of them. Let's work really hard at this and see if we can't get rid of those for you. And that's always a really, you know, a really motivating, um, Mm -hmm. way to, you know, something to throw out there right in the beginning. So, Okay, I'm throwing us back to stress incontinence. So we were talking stress incontinence and uh, Nadia, you you broke that down really well. You know, it's that increase in intra-abdominal pressure. So um, I know for me, a place that I often hear of stress incontinence is with um, at the gym and people who are leaking during their workouts. Um, You know, if we're, if we're, uh, okay, girls, name the top two exercises that people complain about leakage. Jumping jacks. Jumping jacks. (laughs) Yep. Skipping. That's a big one. There you go. Bang, bang, boom. Yep. I was going to say squatting too. That's a big one. Yes, for sure. Any, anywhere where there's that up and down and then in squatting, you have your legs open, right? So your pelvic floor is vulnerable. It's very hard to engage your pelvic floor with your pelvic floor um, put into a stretched position already, right? Mm -hmm. So again, something that we work on through the program, if a patient comes in and is an athlete, um, you know, whatever, whatever kind of athlete they might be, that is a great candidate for pelvic floor. Because again, leaking is not normal. And I know there's been some sports that where they've, you know, they've sort of I don't want to say glamorized incontinence, but they definitely made it seem like it's something very normal. Um, anybody ever hear about that? Anybody ever have experience with that? I've seen a video where it was like a bunch of um, CrossFit shots of like just women doing um, certain activities and then like to- like totally leaking and and you can see it. And so it was kind of like this intense music and they're like intense CrossFitters and they're just leaking and it seemed like it was a bit glamorized and and from that video and I was like oh that's not right. are they trying to say you'll work so hard at our gym we'll make exactly. you pee. <laughs> I think that's literally what they were trying to get across <laughs> like well you'll work so hard that you'll pee your pants and it's like, oh. That's I feel perfect. like it started from um, a famous, I think it was from an Olympics, like it was an Olympic weightlifter who oh, yeah. there was like someone had gotten a picture of her where she was mid, I don't know if it was a snatch or what the move was, but she was in a really deep squat. And then you can see the pee coming out in the picture. And I think it started there to my recollection. I've and then it's kind of been, yeah, yeah, I've seen it too. Yeah. And lived it actually, because I do CrossFit and, um, I've, you know, I always have everyone kind of looks at me when the skipping starts as if to say like, miraculously make me not pee right now. When You know, I kind of panic. I'm like, where's the magic wand? Where's the magic wand? <laughs> um, but 
you know, it, it, and the, one of the things too, that I noticed with people, with, um, people who do have stress incontinence, again, guys, anyone who has a pelvic floor can have stress incontinence. So we're, you know, we, we may have been referring to females, but it's the same, same with males. Um, but I noticed when we're going to get head into what we call the water, the workout of the day in CrossFit, everybody go, every single woman. And I am going to, I'm going to, I'm going to stereotype here a little bit because they all run for the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I never go on purpose. I'm like, no, nope, I'm not going. I'm showing them that they don't have to go. Power <laughs> <laughs> yeah. floor strong out there. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's a thing. A lot of people who know that they have stress, stress incontinence will try to empty beforehand, right? And, and get everything out of their system so that there's nothing there left to leak out, so to speak. But it doesn't always work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or don't and themselves. Sorry, Helena. They'll they'll just not drink water. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And I mean, let's talk about that for a minute. What does that do? Makes it worse. Yeah. Makes it worse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if if we don't drink water, I mean, and you guys know we always talk about this. If you don't drink water, you're actually creating a worse situation for yourself because you are um, the bladder is becoming irritated. It's not being flushed. Nothing's flowing through. And that small amount that you do have in there is becoming concentrated. And it's just itching on the side of that bladder wall so that the bladder wants it out. So, you know, a lot of people think drink more, pee more. It's actually a myth. It's, you know, we have to drink less, pee more is what essentially starts happening. I think the other thing too, that I always tell people who do that, like, I'm just going to go to the bathroom and force everything out is that one, your bladder always has a little bit of urine left. Like that's normal. So even if you go pee and then you go pee five minutes later, you're still going to get a couple drops and people take that as a sign of like, ah, my bladder's not empty, but that's a normal, that's how your body works. And also if you're always trying to force yourself and push to go pee, you can actually weaken your pelvic floor over time which might inadvertently be making the stress incontinence worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the other thing is that people that are doing these, what we call just-in-case peas, like I'm going to go before I skip just-in-case, or I'm going to go before I go grocery shopping and leave the house just-in-case, what you don't realize is you're training your bladder to send more urgency signals and to send them earlier, so you could actually be increasing your urgency as well when you're trying to fix a different bladder problem. Yeah. Yeah. Which is exactly what I was going to say a couple minutes ago as well, is that this um, emptying the bladder just in case isn't just unique to, to stress incontinence, but also with this other type of incontinence that we also deal with, which is urge incontinence. Um, that's a that's a, that's so that's the second type of incontinence that we're going to talk about. <laughs> um, so this type of incontinence is uh, urine loss that's associated with a strong, uncontrollable need to void. So you have a strong sense of urgency, but you don't have the ability to delay it. So you leak. So I hear a lot of times, especially now in COVID, I have a lot of patients actually that are realtors and they have this issue and they tell me that, you know, now with COVID, they're not allowed to use the washrooms in the houses that they show. So they tell me they wear protective padding just in case. And before they go to work, they go and empty all the way because they know they're going to spend the whole day in other people's homes showing their homes and they can't use the washroom. And they have this urge and they're like, as soon as I get it, I have to go. And 
it, and they can't delay it. And this is where the incontinence comes in. Somebody has to, has, as soon as they have to go, they have to go. So mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to leak. Um, but they still have this incredible feeling like I, you know, patients will come in and be like, Carrie, I've got like 30 seconds to get to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. And again, um, you know, another condition that is treated by pelvic floor and pelvic floor physio. And I think sometimes, um, you know, people don't realize that, well, I mean, let's go back to it again. It's just the way I am. It's just, it's normal. It's just the way I am. And it's like, what a terrible feeling to always feel like you have no time to get to the bathroom. And, and mentioning the COVID situation, Helena, I mean, it's everywhere that people go now. So what it's doing is it's actually forcing people to stay home completely. I mean, we're not, I know we're mm-hmm. supposed to be at a stay at home right now anyways, but you know what I mean? If you, if you know yeah. that you can't get out there and go to the bathroom, then you know, you're not you don't want to leave at all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or they're doing just in case peas more, which as Melissa said, can over time inadvertently contribute to the problem because they know they don't have access to a bathroom if they go to the grocery store or they go to Costco. Yeah. And the just in case piece, we think about not wanting to have people do those. I mean, one of the things that we do as practitioners is we teach people to get on. um, I actually call it a potty schedule or a pee schedule with my patients. And it's what is our bladder capable of doing? So our bladder is a muscle that's meant to fill an empty sort of on a schedule, right? I mean, it's meant to work sort of like a well-oiled machine is how I describe it. And if you're going just in case, you're really creating a bladder that doesn't know what full is. So it may have a smaller amount in it, but suddenly it feels very full and you, you have this incredible urgency. So, you know, trying to get people to work on delaying that urge and using strategies to sort of get onto a regular schedule um, is another, another method of treatment that we use. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. One thing that's important to point out with urge incontinence as well is there's a lot of the time an environmental effect with it. So people will say, we call it like the key in the door or people, you know, will be driving home from work. And as soon as they pull in the driveway or as soon as they put the key in that door, all of a sudden they have a ton of urgency and they have to get to the bathroom right away. And it's kind of like Mm -hmm. these environmental triggers that onset that urgency or that urge incontinence. The other place I find it really common, especially it seems to be with males is in the car. Like they can be fine and then they get in the car. And then as soon as they get in the car, like it's like without the access to a bathroom for X amount of time, the urge becomes really uncontrollable. Uh Go ahead. Sorry. I I was just going to say, and it's important to note that like Carrie was already talking about setting a schedule and bladder retraining, these urgency um, environmental effects can be retrained. So you don't have to have this um, urge every single time you get that key in the door. That's where we come in and we help you to retrain your bladder so that this doesn't happen. Absolutely. I always refer to it as the garage pee. I have so many clients who say that when they pull their car into the garage, they have to pee. So I've actually had people, okay, we're going to try to park in the driveway and we're going to try, you know, and different things that sound, you know, sound silly, but, and I'm sure their neighbors are like, why does she keep getting in and out of her car? And, you know, (laughs) but I will get people to practice these techniques, you know, open your door, get out of your car, walk to the door, walk back to your car, sit in your car. And, you know, and I'm sure that their neighbors are like, what is that person doing? Like, but they're training techniques, right? We're trying to train a muscle to work the way that it's supposed to work. So 
we've Don't got you. all kinds of tricks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's like you're loading that system, right? Your, your central nervous system to kind of think of that act that makes you want to go to the bathroom and then continue to do it, but delay that urgency. And so that's kind of where the retraining comes in and trying to strengthen that specific pattern as opposed to your, your older pattern. Yep. Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. So did you guys want to talk about the difference between the urgency and urinary frequency? Yeah. So people know a little bit about that. So we have the urgency, like we mentioned, but there's also frequency. So it's how often you go to urinate in a day. So a normal amount is on average considered every three hours or so. Of course, it depends on how much fluids you're taking in or not taking in, or if you're pregnant or anything else. But on average, it's about three hours or so. So if someone is going much more frequently than that, then it's considered too much. And um, some people actually think that because they're going so often, um, they kind of normalize it and say, oh, it's just because I have a small bladder. It's just the way that I am. But there's actually no such thing as a small bladder. So it's what we've been talking about. It's either that your bladder is irritated from, you know, what the foods you're eating, the, the drinks that you're drinking, or, um, or you just need to retrain your bladder. So there's no such thing, people, as a small bladder. <laughs> And if it is a small bladder, it can be made bigger, just like every other muscle in your body, in your body. Yes. Yes. I kind of chuckle every time I hear that because I'm like, oh, how do I tell them that they don't have a small bladder? Well, apparently if you're like Helena, you just tell them that there's no such thing. So You just have to be blunt. Um, I think too, I, I, um, I always hear something that you mentioned was it, um, I, I, you know, I go often, but it's because I drink a lot of water and, um, you know, and then I'll say to someone, you know, so, okay, what's a, what's a lot of water or I'll have a patient do a bladder diary mm-hmm. and, um, you know, I'll look at how much fluid they're taking in. And, and it goes back to what we talked about earlier. It's usually not actually enough fluid that they're taking in. Um, so just because you take in a certain amount of fluid doesn't mean that you're going to spend every half an hour in the bathroom. And when I am talking about getting on this three hour schedule with patients, I always say you have to have all the other stars aligned, right? So um, what are some of the other things that you look at when we're looking at, okay, how are we gonna, this bladder is irritated, they're going frequently. What are some of the other things that you share with your patients or you you investigate with your patients that might make them, um, that, that lead them to believe that it might be involved in this frequency? So one thing that I always look at is something that we call bladder irritants. So there are things like foods or drinks that will actually irritate your bladder and will cause those frequency and urgency signals to come on more often. Um, So some of those are things like um, caffeine, um, tomato and vinegar-based foods. Chocolate. Chocolate, yeah, that's another good one. Um, Spicy foods, alcohol, there's a whole list. All the good stuff, right? <laughs> I know that's what everyone says um, when I'm actually, um, you know, going through the list. Or like, well, that's great, Carrie. Thanks for taking my good times away. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, those. I mean, there are. There's a huge list of irritants. I always tell my patients, um, I'm going to give you the top nine irritants. Um, because I, and I don't want to go to 10. So I do that on purpose. I'm like, I'm going to give you the top nine and it sounds better than 10. And, uh, many of the things that you guys just mentioned are on there. And I always say, okay, let's look at these irritants and let's, 
um, try to decrease them or eliminate them. Um, I'm not going to lie. I do try to push for as close to an elimination as possible because it's really hard to know if something is irritating until you take it out, get everything working the way that it's supposed to, and then throw it back in. And I get emails all the time from people who say, oh my gosh, Carrie, you know, they, they may have given up let's go with coffee. We all know coffee's an irritant. So they may have given up coffee and then suddenly they go for this coffee and I may not have seen them for two months and I'll get an email. Oh my gosh, Carrie, I had a coffee this morning. I was in the bathroom 50 times. I cannot believe how much this irritated my bladder, but we don't know until we remove it and, and reintroduce it. I feel like some patients right off the bat, they're just like, I'm not eliminating coffee is usually the one that they won't eliminate. And you do kind of have to work with them. Of course, you want to eliminate it to see if it actually does create a difference. But I honestly, I try to modify it as much as I'm like, just modify as much as you can. And then we can figure it out that way. But eventually you're going to have to eliminate it just so that we can see whether there's a true difference. So I know that a lot of patients are hesitant, but you just... I mean, they have to buy into it, right? And you got to explain and educate them the best way that you can. And then hopefully they just buy in and actually follow <laughs> what you what you recommend. I think the other one that I find hard, which is slightly switching gears, but I don't know if you guys encounter this when patients actually drink more water than they're supposed to. Mm -hmm. And you tell them like, you're drinking so much water that you just can't absorb it. And that's why you're going to the washroom. And they're like morally offended that you told them they were drinking too much water. And I find sometimes people have a really hard time cutting that water intake down. And that's another one where I've personally run into a lot of people are like, no, I'm always thirsty. It's good to drink more water. And they have a hard time understanding that more is not always better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I often find that um, I, I, I mean, it goes both ways. Like sometimes it really is about drinking too much water. And then, but I really find that usually those people, when they tell me that they, they drink all this water, it's really not as much as we think it is. So, I mean, let's throw it out there. How much water should, should we be taking in on an average? What do we, what do we use as our, our standard equation with our patients? What's well, about half an ounce for every pound that they, that they weigh. Yeah. And yeah. then um, you'd have to kind of convert that right into. Yeah. And I always adjust for things like, um, breastfeeding or working workouts, you know, those kinds of things, anything that would, um, um, you know, anything that would take away from their, or that they would, that would be uh, depleting their body of more fluid. They need to replace that fluid. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think that's really important for people because a lot of people will come in and say, I don't really know what am I supposed to be Mm -hmm. you know, what am I supposed to be drinking? So um, I think that education is really, really important. And that's a big part of what we do too. I mean, educating people on what are the, you know, when I spoke earlier of aligning the stars, you know, the, the hydration that they're taking in, the avoidance of these bladder irritants, um, you know, going to the bathroom every three hours. And, and, and if you're not quite at that stage, how you get there, training you to get there. So I think that information and education is so important. And I usually take care of, I call it the behavioral side of things in my first visit, my, like following my assessment in my very first visit. I do that for a couple of reasons. Uh, I sneakily do that because usually patients see change and it's sort of a hook, line and sinker. Like, hey, this girl knows what she's talking about. Like, she's, <laughs> she's, I'm not peeing as much as I was before. So I'm like, yes. 
Um, but also I think that in some cases, those are things that are easier for people to make changes yeah. with. Um, although I've met many who would strongly disagree with that statement. Um, mm -hmm. They do not think it's easy to change at all. So, you know, and I'll usually throw it out there, like, just give me, you know, three months of your time and, and see what happens. So, yeah, so I think those things are super important. Um, so we always talk, we talk about this leaking and we talk about incontinence and, you know, we've kind of explained these different types of incontinence and urgency and frequency. And I think another type of incontinence that occurs that doesn't get a lot of attention and it's definitely one that um, people struggle with and struggle with talking about is fecal incontinence or the, um, the inability to hold feces. And I know when people come into my office and I'm digging for details about their bowel history, um, that's a tough, a really tough one for people to talk about. Yeah, I think it is a tough one for people to admit. And I actually had a woman yesterday who came in and has urinary and fecal incontinence. And I said, this is, fecal incontinence is something that we see. And she was like, well, I know urinary incontinence is common. All my friends have it, but no one talks about fecal incontinence ever. Yeah. So I think it's definitely something that kind of gets brushed under the table a little bit more. There's a little bit of more embarrassment with it. And so it, it does happen. And I'm sure maybe some of her friends do experience it, but they just aren't willing to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Even when it comes to assessing it, right? So we, we can do an internal, both the vaginal internal, but also look at the rectum itself. And a lot of times my patients say, oh, please, let's not do that today. Or if we don't have to, can we not do that? So it's just already even coming to a pelvic physiotherapist, some people are very shy and embarrassed about it. So then when you talk about fecal incontinence, that's just another step for them, even more embarrassing. Which is, I mean, it's part of the reason why we're doing this, right? Is to show mm -hmm. people that, yes, it is, you know, it's not a comfortable thing to talk about. I said to a patient today, um, you know, she was quite nervous. And I said, you know, I recognize that when you come into my office, you are not walking in here saying, I, this is my lucky day. I get to have an internal, I get to talk mm -hmm. about incontinence. Like I am so lucky. I said, I realize that this is a really hard topic for you to discuss. But the great news is, is that this is what I do. And this is what I love and my passion is in helping you overcome these issues. So if you can share them with me, there's a better chance that I'll be able to figure out what's going on and then be able to help you solve them. So even just giving like a little bit of praise that they've even come to you, right? Because that's like the first step. And I think that's really tough for a lot of people to, to make that appointment and to, to actually come through the door because Sometimes we'll get, you know, cancellations or whatever, but um, just sitting down with you and actually being there and listening to what you have to say. I think that's that's pretty important and praising them for that. That's really good to do, too. Yeah, I think and I think we talked about that in our first episode about just really creating that comfortable environment where someone can come in and be OK with sharing those things with you. Mm -hmm. So um I just wanted to talk a little bit about and, and share with our listeners about um, the pel how the pelvic floor relates to incontinence. So um, there, and, and I think Melissa, it was you who mentioned this earlier, was the difference between, you know, a weakened pelvic floor and a tight pelvic floor. Yeah, so a lot of us think about our pelvic floor 
and leakage as we have a weak pelvic floor and we have to strengthen our pelvic floor. Um, but there's actually two sides to the story. You can have a loose, weak pelvic floor or you can have a tight, weak pelvic floor. And so it's super important to go and see somebody who can assess your pelvic floor to kind of see what end of the spectrum you are on so that we can determine what's the best way to treat your leakage because Kegels and pelvic floor exercises are not always the answer. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think that's we. I mean, I know I hear that all the day, like, well, I've been all the time. Well, I've been doing my Kegels, and it's like, oh, you've got this really tight floor, and then you're trying to tighten a really tight floor, and actually, what we're doing is is we're doing more harm than good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And even yeah, the and- of those muscles, right? So when you have stress incontinence and you're doing jumping jacks at the gym, like your pelvic floor muscles should be able to automatically create that tension so that you don't have that leakage. And so if your muscles aren't coordinating well, so that's, that's one thing that we do do test in um, when doing an internal, it's the coordination of the muscle, how it's moving. um, And if it's moving, like if there's, you know, if they can quickly move their pelvic floor, um, those are all really important things to, to look at as well. I think that's partially too where Kegels kind of fall down a little bit is that a Kegel, most people are just doing an up and like a lift and they're not thinking about the speed of the lift or grading the lift and that's where seeing a physio can really help um, bring those things to the forefront of your mind and teach you how to use your pelvic floor in different ways aside from just contract, relax. Because as Nadia mentioned, sometimes you need those muscles to turn on quickly. Um, and that's really not encompassed in doing just a regular Kegel. Yeah. yeah something that I, Sorry, go ahead. Something that I always tell my patients is that if you sneeze and then leak and then your pelvic floor contracts, it doesn't matter how strong your pelvic floor is because you've already leaked. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I think, too, learning the difference between the strength and the and the tone and all of these different things and um, how the floor is actually working and coordination and all of these different, different strategies. Um, that's where we come in, right, is really breaking it down and taking it taking it back to the, to the very basics of those pelvic floor muscles and, uh, and, and training them to work properly and teaching our patients how to, how to use them properly, I think is the, is the biggest thing, empowering these people. There's nothing, I love nothing better than when a, when a patient comes in and says, Carrie, I haven't leaked since our last visit. And I'm always like, yay! Like, it's just, mm-hmm. I, I, I do, I cheer out loud because it's, it's, it's so empowering for that patient to know that they can go do these things and not have to worry. They can get on the trampoline with those kids and they can jump as high as they want because they no longer leak urine. And that's, that is so empowering. Yeah. For sure. And I don't know about you guys, but like with most of my patients, I'd say 90% of my patients don't actually know how to do a Kegel. And so they're like, I'm doing all these Kegels. And really, when you go to test it, it's like they're they're bearing down or they're just doing it incorrectly. And so um, teaching how to, to how to actually coordinate those muscles in order to do a proper Kegel is super important as well, if it's if it's indicated. Yeah, that's awesome, guys. Absolutely. So one of the things that we wanted to do on this podcast is we wanted to um, give give our, our listeners an idea of a situation where a patient has come in to, um, to see us, one of us, 
based on the topic of the evening. So with tonight's incontinence topic and, and leaking, um, Helena is going to tell us a tale. Mm -hmm. So uh, we kind of touched uh, upon a lot of the stuff that I wanted to talk about specifically today. Um, I specifically brought up a case that is not uncommon, but it's less commonly thought about when it comes to urinary incontinence. So we talked about today a lot of CrossFit and athletes, and that's actually perfect because that's exactly what my case is about. <laughs> so this specific patient uh, came to see me after struggling for about 10 years with urinary incontinence. Now, I also wanted to point out that hearing someone has been suffering for so long is also not uncommon. So this particular patient had no idea that there's something that can be done about her leaking and had absolutely no idea that pelvic physiotherapists even existed. So thank God she found me, right? <laughs> Finally. Um, so anyway, a little bit about this patient. Uh, she is a woman who is 35 years old. She has never been pregnant and never had any children. She has always been an athlete. So since high school, she's been playing basketball, first competitively, then professionally. And then later in her later years, she took up weightlifting and most recently CrossFit as a hobby. <laughs> so throughout all her life, kind of, she's been in this sports world, athlete, always looked after her health and nutrition. So she herself thought of herself as a very fit and healthy individual. However, she did tell me that, again, talking back to protective padding from today, that throughout all her years of even playing basketball, she had to wear at least a liner. So she said, you know, I know that at least 50% of the time, if I'm on the court and I jump up to, to shoot that ball, there's going to be leaking. And that's one of the most embarrassing things that, that can happen to her, especially in public on the court. So finally, you know, now with CrossFit, um, she decided enough is enough. And the reason for this is because she said that now the pads aren't even enough. They're not even working. So when she lifts, um, she bends down to lift the weights. She's like, you know, the padding is not even enough. The, the leaking just goes all the way through. So finally, she decided to go to her doctor and she was referred to me. So after meeting with this patient and after a thorough assessment, here is what I gathered. The patient was unique because everyone is unique. Everyone has their own story. However, her root problem was not so unique. So she was a chest breather, so she did not use her diaphragm properly to breathe. Her pelvic floor muscles were super tight. So this is that hypertonic um, shortened state that we were talking about earlier in the podcast. So her muscles were so tight that there was no way that the strength and function that she needed in her pelvic floor to function was going to be there, which it wasn't. She had a very difficult time connecting her breath to the pelvic floor, and she wasn't able to hold a pelvic floor contraction or a Kegel for longer than two seconds. She was obviously so upset and frustrated by this because obviously she's been such an athlete her whole life, and she just felt like what the heck? How come now with my pelvic floor? I can't do this. I can't, I can't train my pelvic floor. She just felt like there was such a disconnect. So obviously it was upsetting for me to see her upset. But like I said, the root problem was not so unique. So I had to explain this to her. And I told her, you know, I've seen this many times. And the good news is, is I've seen improvements and results. And it doesn't take that long to start seeing some results at least. So that's literally what I said to her and we went on from there. So after only about 
five sessions or so um, spending with this patient, teaching her how to use the diaphragm properly to breathe, to relax, and to lengthen out those pelvic floor muscles, we were able to loosen up the muscles just enough for her to start strengthening. So we're actually still working together, um, but you know, after only three months or so, her progression has made a huge impact, both on the anatomy of her floor, the tone, the strength, the function, but also, and most importantly, in her quality of life. You know, she tells me, I finally feel that after 10 years of struggling with this, I finally have at least a little bit of control over it. It's still not perfect, <laughs> but she sees progression, which I think is the most important part because now she's determined to keep going and to see this all the way through. So the reason that I brought up this patient specifically is because I thought it'd be interesting for people who aren't in this pelvic world to see that anyone can experience urinary incontinence or leaking. It doesn't have to be a middle-aged woman or a pregnant woman or a woman who has given birth or even a woman at all. It can be an issue for a man, an athlete, a child, absolutely anyone. So I really hope that this example brought some light to the issue and that, you know, anyone listening out there to this podcast can either go and get some help themselves or they can tell someone they know who is struggling with this issue that it can happen to anyone and pelvic physiotherapy exists and we can help you people. <laughs> so funny because although we're doing a podcast, um, the, five of, uh, the, the five of us are looking at each other and every one of us just has the biggest smile right now because it's such a, it's such a feeling of success. We've all been there and um, you know, I always tell people no matter how small the success, we celebrate the success. So it's mm -hmm. uh, definitely, I think that was a great recap of a perfect example of someone we would see and, uh, and all encompassing to all the different types of, of pelvic floors that come into our offices. So, mm -hmm. so thanks for sharing that, Helena. Yeah, um, so no Helena, you're a great storyteller. <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> <really dynamic>. <laughs> <laughs> My smile was so big. I was like, yeah. I'm like, this is awesome. <laughs> Do you want me to keep going? <laughs> <laughs> no, you can't, Helena, because unfortunately it's time for us to wrap up the podcast for tonight. Oh, no. <laughs> so so um, we hope that everyone has taken something out of this podcast this evening. As always, if you have any questions for us, you can reach us by way of um, social media. So you can find us at, at Tales from the Floor, um, both on Instagram and on Facebook, um, at A Body in Motion Rehab, and um, obviously by uh, email at either one of our clinics. So we hope that everyone has a fabulous day, night, run, workout, whatever it is that you're doing right now as you're listening to us. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you at our next episode. Thanks for joining in, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Yeah. Thanks so much for tuning into the Tales from the Floor podcast. And we hope that our tales have inspired you in some way. Please remember that the information provided in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. We recommend that you invite a pelvic physiotherapist into your personal healthcare team. Thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend. Let's see how many people can find their voice to tell their tale. Leave a rating on iTunes and don't forget to follow us at A Body in Motion Rehab. Thanks for listening and for doing your part to help us stop the whispering.